Hello, friends. Welcome back to another week of Trashy Divorces. My name is Stacy. Hi, I'm Alicia. Welcome and thanks for joining us for a whole new fresh episode of Trashy Divorces. This week, we had some sugar, sticky, sweet, trash candy stuff using a delightful little song from one of our hometown bands, Sugarland. Stuck like glue. Stacy, your story this week. Marie Osmond, who is not trashy. She's extremely relatable, has been through so much. And this was requested by uh, one of our trash associate producers over on Patreon. And we appreciate that. Thank you. There may be a halo involved. There are some halos involved. You have one that is remarkably halo-free. No halos, just trashy. Trash like an Egyptian. Mm. No technical divorces per se, but a lot of murders and schemes and plots and crimes. This week I'm covering Cleopatra, the Egyptian queen, but not the only one. God, it's a good story. It's a good story. It is. A, there is a lot of trash. This is AP Trashy Divorces History, y'all. There is a lot of trash. Before we get started with the episode this week, let's talk about what we did on Patreon. Sure. Trashy tidbits on Monday, per usual. Oh, I did a deep dive into the curse of the Scottish play this week. Right. We did some uh, Gilmore Girls relationship rankings, I guess. We really just needed some happy on Wednesday. And this Thursday, you brought us an interesting perspective on the Salem Witch Trials. Yeah. Yeah, it was a Church of the Flaming Dumpster Fire about Cotton Mather, who had some problems. It was really good. Let's pull out the magic mirror and give some huge thanks and love and praise to our new patrons this week. Stacy, start us out. Absolutely. Thank you so much to Tina H., Carrie P., Taishira D., Sophie D., A. Spencer Hall, Jen, Janet A., Carrie S., Christine P., Leota L., Emma N., Sue R. And who are our super supporters this week? Oh my gosh. More thanks to Jennifer D., Ashley Nicole, and Taylor O., We can't wait to see you at the next live Sunday Salon happening next Sunday, October 25th for all of our trash candy connoisseurs. I do love that benefit. I do too. Literally the best Sunday of our month. It is the best Sunday of our month. So thank you to all of our supporters on Patreon. You are the very best. And if you are interested in getting a little taste of what's happening over on the Patreon, we have like 30 plus totally free episodes we pulled out from the can you believe it? 400 plus episodes on our Patreon catalog. Yeah, just go to bit.ly slash trash candy quarantine in your browser. The episodes that are currently there are going to be available for you to trick or treat through until Halloween. So about another two weeks, then we're going to be pulling those back and releasing new ones over there for the month of November. Mm-hmm. Also, Patreon has opened up annual billing, so if you are looking for a gift idea for your favorite Trash Panda, we got you, and you can save 15% with the annual subscription. I think that's all the trashy business. I think so. So are you about ready to start the show? There you go. Making my heart beat again. I'm stuck like glue on trashy divorces. (laughs) Let's go, go, go. So, Stacey, you kind of have a living legend this week? I I suppose I do. I suppose I do, yes. Um, I have a story requested by our trash associate producer, Karen S. It's over, our first one. We're so excited. Over on Patreon. This is singer, actor, entrepreneur, uh, doll maker or doll marketer. I don't know. Extraordinaire. Two-time divorcee who has ended up remarried to her first husband. No way. It is Marie Osmond. (gasps) Yay. 
She's been through a whole heck of a lot in her life and has become a really inspiring figure to a lot of women through her openness about her struggles with postpartum depression, the loss of her adult son, championing her gay daughter, and of course, her circuitous path to true love, which I shall now walk us along. This sounds like a hell of a story. Let's go. The famously musical Osmond family first burst onto the scene back in the 1960s as a kid's barbershop quartet on The Andy Williams Show. No way. Way. And you covered Andy Williams. I did in his divorce from Claudine Langer and before the she... murder of Spider Savage. Allegedly uh, murdered Spider Savage. Alleged murder of... Anyway. Okay, so the Osmond family, which ultimately included the... <laughs> The nine children of Olive and George Osmond, be be fruitful and multiply, was deeply enmeshed in show business from the time that the children were all quite young. They were just good at it. It was just a musical family. Like, it wasn't like the parents set out to raise a boy band, but they were just all very musical. And then people started paying them to, like, show up and sing at parties. Uh, You like what you like. And from there, Marie Osmond is the only daughter of this tribe. She has eight brothers. She made her first appearance with them on the Andy Williams show when she was four years old. And she would perform with them sometimes, but she was never like part of their teen boy band heartthrob thing that made Donnie Osmond the poster child of 70s puppy love. And they call it puppy love. Mm. Yeah, that's the one. (laughs) Okay. Marie, born Olive Marie Osmond, named for her mother. Her mother was Olive. On October 13th, 1959, is a Libra. Love it. At the family's home base in Ogden, Utah, she was more interested in country music and as a young teen had her first number one country hit with the song Paper Roses. She was a big musical success throughout the 70s, but I think what she's best known for from that era is the television variety show she starred on alongside her brother. Oh, I never missed it. Donnie and Marie ran from 1976 to 1978 and popularized the duetted phrase from a song, naturally. I'm a little bit country, and he would say, I'm I'm a little little bit bit rock and roll. roll. Mm -hmm. All right, so as the only daughter in a big, big, big Mormon family, Marie had to live with some rules in spite of her and her siblings' entertainment success. As a refresher, Mormons avoid booze and caffeine and definitely frown on premarital sex, and Marie was not allowed to go on a date until she was 18 years old, several years after she had had her first number one hit. Holy cow. I know. It's really remarkable to think about. But Mormonism envisions family relationships as eternal, and she would tell People magazine, you know, when she was 18-ish or so, quote, I'm not in any rush, but by the time I'm 21, I'll probably want to get serious. Showbiz isn't for eternity. Marriage is. Aww. Aww, little, Aww, little Marie. Marie. <laughs> 21. That's when you're ready to settle that's down when you and know a lot make lifetime about the, commitments. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Okay. By 1979, television audiences had kind of gotten a little tired of the relentlessly upbeat brother-sister song and dance routine. So while Donnie and Marie was canceled... She went on to do some TV movies and had some other not, like, super successful TV things happening. But in the, you know, in the early 80s, Marie Osmond was busy with another aspect of her life because she had turned 18. Oh, my. And she (laughs) found a boy. A few of them. She did. She found a few of them. So she had brief and we assume fairly chaste relationships with actor Eric Estrada and BG singer Andy Gibb. 
She, no. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Really? Yes. She was briefly engaged to an acting student in 1979, but that broke up a few months after they announced the engagement. 1982. She married Stephen Craig, a Brigham Young University basketball player, whom she'd known for about five years. They dated for about 18 months and then tied the knot on June 26th in front of 4,000 guests. Excuse me? 4,000? Well, I mean, that's probably just inviting all of her cousins, right? Like, How do you do that? How do you do a reception for 4,000 people? I, I do not cats. know. But I mean, keep in mind, like her family by this point had been famous for almost 20 years. So not only is it like, you know, Mormonism with very large families, but but probably from the entertainment world, there were also a lot of interested parties. So that might be the 4, highest is, guest count so I was far gonna for say, a wedding that, is that a we've heard. That is a huge number of people. Just putting that wedding together would, I would break up most couples. cannot imagine. Actually, maybe it did. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, they welcomed a son whom they named Stephen uh, in 1983. Subsequently, her career was at a bit of a low point. And I gather that being married wasn't all that she was expecting it to be, and probably also not all that Stephen was expecting it to be either. He worked at Osmond Studios, and, you know, he's a young Mormon man, and it's the early 80s, and it seems very reasonable to me that he had a particular view of how this marriage thing was going to look. Sure. And he ended up marrying a celebrity who had all kinds of outside commitments. And it didn't look like he thought it was going to look. And it didn't look like he thought it was going to look, and I don't think... I think she had a view of how it was going to look, too, and it just it was not that for either of them. And they call it puppy love. They call it short first (laughs) marriage love. In 1985, three years into their marriage, and after at least two unsuccessful attempts to reconcile, periods of months where they were like, I'm sure being guided by, you know, the church and family members and stuff. This sounds like it was a nightmare first marriage. I mean, I don't think it was violent or anything, but, but just like... I think these are two super idealistic people who are doing everything they can to stay together and it's just and not working. It is not working. Wow. Um, so yeah, they they divorced and that is a very big deal in Mormonism and it was a real source of anguish for her. So in her book, Might As Well Laugh About It Now, she talks about how her mother, who was always super support, like once it was clear that things were not great in the marriage, her mother was apparently very open to like, no, honey, if this is not Working what out, needs to be happening, then... It's t- I mean, it's hard. It's You disappoint your family, and you disappoint yourself. Or you worry you, about disappointing, yeah. you know? Okay, so, you know, she's kind of wallowing after the divorce, like you do. And her mother says, Murray, you have to dry your eyes, gather yourself together, and get on with it. You have a child who needs a happy mother. Yeah. So this was the push that she needed to shift her focus around, but... You know, she's also suddenly on the hook for the care and feeding of a baby. So suddenly the Mormon girl with really traditional dreams finds herself as a working single mother. Really? It's not what, that's not what you go in for. Nope. Yeah. Nope. All right. So life comes at you fast, but we got to give some credit where it's due. Marie Osmond is an incredibly resilient person. But of course, that's something you only find out by dealing with tough challenges. That's it. So, all right. So she goes back to work. She put two songs into the number one slot on the country charts in 1985. The year of her her divorce. Another one in 86. About a year after divorcing Stephen, she met husband number two, record producer Brian Blosel. 
He had an amazing sense of humor, and in her book, she says that she felt like she really hadn't been able to laugh for a very long time, like even back during oh, it feels the marriage. Nice. Yeah, it feels yeah. Good so she was disarmed, you know, like it just it felt good to laugh. Also, though, she says that this was a classic rebound relationship, but she was too young and inexperienced to know that. Oh no! So they married in 1986 after knowing each other for less than one year. Wow! And you know. This one lasts a long time, but does not work out in the end. But, I mean, they would grow the family to include seven more children. I mean, they have two. They adopt five. Marie Osmond is the mother of eight kids. I mean, it's... <laughs> this is, that is remarkable. Yeah, it's that's her great joy in life. I mean, she's proud of the other things she does, but, like, being a mom is... That's her, that's her pride in life. So it seems like while she and Brian were both game to be in the relationship and try to make each other happy... They were never actually on the same page with their dreams and their priorities. Mm. Just a misalignment. They really did try. I mean, both of them. So in 1999 or 2000, somewhere in that area, uh, she was really struggling with postpartum depression. They went so far at that point as to separate. They were seriously talking about divorce. At one point, according to the Desiree News, Marie turned her finances over to the nanny drove up the California coast, booked herself into a tiny hotel, and planned to never come back. She was just going to disappear. Like, depression, Ooh, man. Just pull a runner. Yeah. Postpartum depression is... It is a big deal. She wrote a whole book about wow. it. To, yeah. To, and she I went after... Have, I've learned side. No idea. When Tom Cruise criticized Brooke Shields for taking antidepressants or whatever... Oh, Yeah. Marie Osmond was like, yeah, Tom, when you turn into a woman and have a baby and have postpartum depression, then you can be an expert on this. Oh, good for you. Mm -hmm. I, she's she's lucky. Mm -hmm. I like her. All right. So uh, Brian was finally able to get her to answer her cell phone and he drove up to make sure that she was okay. But, you know, they opted to separate for a while. Brian moved to their home in Utah. Marie stayed in Los Angeles with the kids to like finish out the television season that she was working on. I'm sure they were in school there. So she spent a few months in therapy working through her things. And like, it seems like Brian was also trying to make some changes for the better. I don't know what the specifics of whatever was, was bothering them at the time. But the truth lies in everyone's heart. <laughs> they opted to stay together, but life did not slow down for either of them, it turns out. So in 04, Marie's much-beloved mother died at the age of 79. Oh, Marie. And she had had a stroke a few years earlier, and I guess Marie was one, like a main caregiver for her. There was a house fire the next year at the home that she and Brian shared in Provo, Utah, where a oh, lot of... No. Well, like a lot of the stuff that her mother had left her was destroyed. <sighs> so it was, yeah, just heartbreaking. This is some middle-age trauma. Yeah. Well, and Brian... This Bri is such an understandable story. Mm -hmm. So Brian, meanwhile... I'm not sure the year, but he had a brain tumor somewhere in here. Oh, my um, God. Yeah, survived it, obviously, but, you know, just stuff upon stuff. And then in 2006, there was there was an incident. Marie ended up hospitalized. She says she had an adverse reaction to a medication. But the National Enquirer helpfully reported that she had attempted suicide. So no fun stuff. So it just there was just a lot of stuff stacking on top of each other. And it just doesn't sound like she and Brian were facing it together they were kind of that's a tough i'm gonna cry that's a tough place to be yeah for sure so they announced their divorce in 07 both stressed that the marriage had been faithful and that their relationship remained amicable they have eight kids right, right? 
So yeah, it was just a 21 year long rebound, but uh, it didn't appear that it ever gave them the kind of emotional sustenance that they both deserved. So the biggest tragedies, tragically, were yet to come. Oh no. After announcing the divorce in March, her father, George Osmond, would pass away in November at the age of 90. And My. this had been, there was an Oprah spot pre-planned because it was like the 50th anniversary of the Osmond family barbershop quartet thing. Sure. Okay. Oprah had the whole family, which is like 125 Osmonds. Oh my God. Because the nine kids had 55 kids apiece. Kids who at that point had Holy 45. Cats. Yeah. So it's like nine kids, 55 grandkids and 40 something great grandkids at the moment. And I'm sure it's higher now. Do you just hire a charter, a private plane to fly them to Harpo Studios? Pretty much. Yeah. Pretty much. They relocated the population of Utah to Chicago. Wow. Um, we'll link to it. Um, it's it's fun. But I mean, this this happened a week after the the patriarch of the family died. Oh, how devastating. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you can, you know, Marie's going through a divorce, like you can you can see it in her. It was it was relatable. I mean, it's just But you don't cancel on Oprah. No, no one cancels on Oprah. Okay. Meanwhile, one of her sons, Michael, had struggled with depression and substance misuse since adolescence. Mm. And in February of 2010, he died by suicide at the age of 18. Oh, that's tragic. Yeah, I I do. I feel, yeah, I feel very bad for her. She said later that he was bullied badly by some of his peers because of his sobriety and his commitment to staying sober. Mm. And she believes that this really made him feel like he was never going to fit in, like he was never going to find a place for himself. And he's 18. It's so normal to feel that way. Very sad, she said, as recently as last year on CBS Sunday Morning, that, quote, I don't think you're ever through it. I think God gives you respites. And then all of a sudden, it'll hit you like the day it did. Yeah. The ripple the ripple effect is so huge. So, okay. Very tough period of time for our, for our dear hero, Marie Osmond. You don't know how resilient you are until it comes at you. No. That's tragic. Okay. Behind the scenes, and very much on the down low, she had reconnected with first husband, Stephen Craig. What? Keep in mind, they still have a son. Surprise return. Yeah. And so, you know, he's grown now, but I guess while hanging out with him, something shifted for them around 2009. Uh Uh-uh. And so they very gingerly, they very discreetly began dating. They did not want... Anyone, she was terrified that, like, like Stephen would find out that. Oh, she so was, even the kid doesn't know. Nobody I, knows. Yeah, she said, "I didn't want anyone to get hurt, you know, if it didn't work out." And gosh, it just worked out. <laughs> so on May fourth, twenty eleven, Marie Osmond and Stephen Craig married for a second time. Wow! In a small ceremony in Las Vegas, where she and her brother Donnie were doing, they had like a long running show in Vegas. While this is the ultimate wish fulfillment for divorced kids everywhere, the 26-year gap likely meant that the younger Stephen was more bemused than anything else. But I'm sure he was thrilled to see his parents happy together. Well, I'm sure they were thrilled they didn't have to plan a 4,000-guest wedding. You're not kidding. 
Marie wore the same wedding dress. No, she did not. That she had worn the first time. Aww. 29 years earlier. Wow. Which, let's be frank, she has talked about the gross level of body shaming and forced weight loss that she was subjected to while on the Donnie and Marie show. So that strikes me as a very weird flex, to be honest. Hey, look, I can still fit into the dress I wore back when I wasn't allowed to eat anything. Well, she did Dancing with the Stars. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She was a weight loss rep, too, right? She's a Nutrisystem spokesperson. There you go. But I think that started later. But perhaps it was because they heard about this dress thing and they were like, wait, (laughs) 29 years? Okay. So she and Steven have been together ever since, and they seem to be very happy and very into each other and very at peace with who they are and the lives that they have lived. One of Marie's daughters, Jessica, is gay, and Marie has been explicit and vociferous in her support of gay rights. Good on you, Mom. Totally. In 2013, she told Diane Sawyer, The God that I believe in is a God of love, not fear. I believe in my daughter's civil rights as a mother. I love this. She said, I don't think God made one color flower. I think he made many. That is a great sentiment. It's a great sentiment. So, this is the feel-good story of trashy divorces. I mean, it... Yeah. Karen S. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> yes. So, I mean, I don't know what else to say. Like, she did one season of the talk, talk show after Sarah Gilbert left, but she didn't... Like, she opted out this year or something. Well, I don't know. She's got her dolls. She's got her dolls on QVC. And her second and her new happy hubby. husband. They just That's... dropped their youngest kids off at college for the first time. <laughs> I got something to move in that empty nest. Have you met my dolls? <laughs> yeah, so here it is. The not trashy life and times of Marie Osmond, who has overcome a lot of things in the process of getting her first marriage to finally stick. <laughs> Stuck like glue. Like, I'm not a big Halo awarder, as frequent listeners will know, but this is just Halos. This is, like, Marie is another Weeble kind of person. I mean, that's that was our metaphor for Kathy Griffin, and she will wobble sometimes, but you will not knock her down. So, Karen S., thank you so much for asking for this. Absolutely. That and was a great story. for your trash associate producer support on Patreon. And um, I think we're going to have to order a Marie Osmond votive candle now because I think she's a new patron saint. She may be a new trashy patron saint. (laughs) She's amazing. (laughs) I had no idea. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Stacey. You're welcome. Let's take a break. Go dry our tears. Yeah. Hear from our awesome sponsor today. Definitely. We're going to come back with the... With something trashier. Uh, So much trashier. But another another sibling-based story. Trashy family values For sure. This one goes in a terrible direction. Terrible. (laughs) See you on the flip. Hi, everybody. I'm Katie Segal. And I'm Kurt Sutter. And welcome to our new podcast called Pi, People, Influences, and Experiences. Yes, it's sort of the uh, get to know you at a deeper level, the who, what, when, where, and why you are rather than what it is you do. Absolutely. We're not going to talk too much about what people do. We just want to know about their families, where they come from, you know, what shapes their parenting, if they have kids, what shapes their marriages, if they're married. We just want to be really nosy. We want to get in there. A deep dive into nature and nurture. And we started it because there are a lot of people that we don't know that we are curious about. Right. And I have no friends. So for me, it's, you know. Trying to get them out of the house. Listen to it on whatever you listen to. (laughs) 
podcasts on. Yeah, podcast your, homecasts. Your, 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 your podcasting apparatus. Watch it on the YouTube. He's aging himself. All right, Alicia, I understand this one has a lot of halos. Ah, it is just a halo-rich environment. There is nary a halo to be found in this story. All right. That means it's trashy. I like it. But it is Trashy Divorces, and it's a good podcast about bad relationships. So I pulled out part of a narrative that we have talked about forever ago on Patreon and twisted it a little bit this week for our Trashy Witches Month. It seemed fitting as we were talking about some family dynamics this week. Y'all. <laughs> Cleopatra, queen of Egypt. Mm-hmm. She is born in Egypt. Mm-hmm. She's royal. Mm-hmm. However, she's actually Greek Macedonian. This is like the British royal family is actually German. Or maybe African. No one really knows her exact lineage, which causes a lot of kerfuffle as... Elizabeth Taylor has played her. Oh, right, right. has played her. Gal Gadot is about to play Cleopatra. And it's like, nah, she probably didn't look like that. Anyway, Cleopatra is actually the one that we remember, but she is the seventh Cleopatra in the Ptolemy dynasty. Okay. There have been six Cleopatras before her. Interesting. But she's the one that stands alone. And so it's a very common royal name for the Ptolemy. Okay. The so, stuff you learn on the show. I, well, there are not a lot of technical trashy divorces in this story, but there is a lot of fuck, marry, or kill. Oh. Okay? <laughs> a lot of true crime. A lot of legend. Because there are no real-time historical accounts of Cleopatra from her day. Written accounts are coming in 200 years later, written by the winners of the history and Cleopatra is not necessarily remembered as a winner in that history. Like Plutarch, Cassiodeo, right? More than 200 years after her death. So real-time accounts, a lot of fake news. Okay. Okay. But with old Cleo, we have two husbands that are also her brothers. Ick, but okay. A baby sister It's going to cause a little trouble, who will also be queen of Egypt for a hot minute. Cleopatra was not the only Egyptian queen. Huh. Okay, but revenge and the crime of the century come into play there. There's some high-level dysfunction in this family. Like, a mago does not begin to cover it. Also with Cleo, we got two baby daddies who are also dictators, and she will have a total of four kids. The story has everything. Okay. Let's get into it. We're time traveling back the furthest I think we've ever gone on Trashy Divorces today. We're going back to 69 BC. Dude. Dude. (laughs) To the birth of Cleopatra. She is the second daughter of Ptolemy 12 and Cleopatra 6. Okay. She's Macedonian Greek royalty. And the proud parents are delighted. Her proud parents are also brother and sister. Eek. I get that it was what you did at the time. That's what you did. Royal. You, keep you marry it. your siblings first and then to keep second you kill them. The great. It's a killer be killed kind of palace. Wow. All right. So Ptolemy 12, P12 and Cleo 6 <laughs> already have. Silent P12. Silent P12. 
already have one daughter, Bernice. And Cleopatra is born. And then she's going to end up with a few younger siblings. A little sister, Arsinoe, and two younger brothers, Ptolemy 13, Ptolemy 14. Wow. P13, P14, still both silent. Okay. So Cleopatra grows up a royal child. And she has all the best of everything. Sure. She speaks at least seven, maybe up to 12 languages. She is educated. Historians do debate hotly about her looks and her legendary beauty. But whatever she's got, she knows how to work it. Like we found coins of her that do not appear. Like in coins typically have a pretty good likeness of you. I'm not saying Cleopatra is any kind of looker. I'm saying she knows how to work what she's got. We will find out. Maybe she's going to have to learn how to work it because family issues begin (laughs) early. All right. Cleopatra's older sister, Bernice, she attempts to take her daddy, Ptolemy 12, out of the running. It's pretty bad. Permanent silent P. Permanent silent P. And daddy P12 is like, Nah, this is my kingdom, kid. So P12 is going to ally with Rome to squelch Bernice's takeover. Bernice is dead by the time the failed takeover attempt. So this isn't just Palestine. Like, she raised an army, that kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. Good for her. You go, Bernie. Bernice. Bernie and Cleo. Yeah, well, she's dead. Yeah, well, okay. Okay. And, you know. You know what, though? She would be dead by now anyway. Well, P12 kills her. You don't kill just your siblings. I know. If you don't, yeah. You come with a king, you don't miss. You kill your kids, too. So it's a pretty fucked up system. But in 51 BC, P12, daddy, dies. And now there are four Ptolemy kids left standing. We got Cleo. We got Arsinoe. We have Ptolemy 13, Ptolemy 14. P13, P14. Cleopatra is 18. And naturally, the first thing you do, you're going to marry your brother. Eek. So she marries P13 so they can co-rule the kingdom. How old is P13? Is he about 13? Like 12, 13. Yeah, he's a... P13 he's is a his teenager. age. teenager. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Maybe even a little younger. He's... he's. Okay. Yeah. Eek. And now they're co-ruling the kingdom. But Daddy P12 is dead. And Rome has troops in Egypt. And they're like, hey, this is pretty cool. We see where we can take an advantage here. And how will the Ptolemies resist this forced alliance? Hmm. Well, Cleo is like, hey, P13, Rome has helped us before. And I'm not sure if you've looked at the geography of the Roman Empire and us, but... uh." Egypt is sort of the only place within a thousand miles in any direction that is not controlled by the Roman Empire. And we may just get further by working with Rome and not against them. So hubby bro, P13, who is a adolescent, is like, fuck that, Cleopatra. You're banished. You're banished. You're exiled from Alexandria. I'm done with you. And the Roman Empire is like... Because Dudebro wants to fight with Rome rather than not yeah. fight with yes. very powerful Rome. Yeah, because okay. he's 12. Good thinking. Yeah, he thinks it's a video game. Good thinking. It, go, it goes bad. Does okay. it? I'm surprised. <laughs> it goes badly. So the Roman Empire is like, 
you cheeky fucking Egyptians. We would be really happy to settle this for you because their ruler, Julius Caesar, and Cleopatra's daddy, P-12, were good buddies. So JC, Julius Caesar, is going to head on down to Alexandria to put his foot down and fix all this noise. Let's talk a little bit about Julius Caesar. Because he is riding into Alexandria in 51 BC with some fucking baggage. I'm going to stick to high-level stuff here because Julius Caesar... You could write a whole play about him. No, it's it's his own podcast. Okay. Julius Caesar, born in Rome. He's a cancer man, July 12th, born in 100 BC. He's from a patrician family. They've been in Rome like seven centuries. His family's a big deal. His father even rules Asia at one point. Hmm. But Julius's dad dies when he's like 16, which leaves Julius in this precarious position. He's a priest at one point, but it's fucking Rome in the last hundred years of BC. So there's civil wars and then Julius gets married and sides are always switching and he's going to lose everything. He's going to lose everything a bunch in his life, but that doesn't stop him. Okay. So he's exiled. He will not divorce his wife, Cornelia. Caesar ends up joining the army and kind of living on the wild side, right? With the army going on a lot of missions. One of these missions is to the court of King Nicodemus. And Julius Caesar stays so long at the court of King Nick that there are rumors that the two of them have fallen in love, that Julius Caesar has to deny his whole life. Hmm. I was not lovers with King Nicodemus. That did not happen. But that's how long he holds up. Hmm. Okay. Also, Julius Caesar is known to make super dramatic gestures, has a high-pitched voice, and is probably also totally for sure bisexual. Okay. So by the age of 33, Julius Caesar coming back to Rome. Political (laughs) stuff has shifted again. And this is probably my favorite story about Julius Caesar. On the way back to Rome, Julius is hijacked by pirates on the Aegean Sea. And he gets hijacked, captured, and he's like totally haughty about it. He's like, y'all, when I am out of here, I'm going to kill you. And the pirates just think Julius Caesar is a hoot. They think he's (laughs) hilarious. They think he's joking. The pirates will demand 20 talents for him and his ransom. That was the standard, like, whatever. It's a lot of cash. And Julius Caesar is offended. He's like, you are fucking lowballing this, pirates. I'm worth 50 talents at least. Sounds like a terrible hostage. If you're going to ransom me, at least get a good price. Come He's on. just mocking them at every I turn. Love this story. And... So the ransom is paid and Julius Caesar is freed. And once he is, he will get a fleet to go after the pirates, capture and imprison them. And sure enough, like... Julius Caesar was not joking, but in all of his kind, gregarious leniency, he will cut the pirates' throats before he crucifies them. Well, so that's nice. I I mean, a humane approach. So back in Rome. Sure. Julius has been elected to the Tribune, which starts his kind of upward rise. By 69 BC, he's elected into a higher position. And also his wife Cornelia dies that same year. So his wife won, done. He's going to marry again. 
to wife two, Pompeia, in 67 BC, which goes fine enough until they have a trashy divorce scandal in 61 BC. I'm going to talk about it on Trashy Tidbits this week. It really is kind of fun. But this is where we get the phrase, Caesar's wife must be above suspicion, is because of Pompeia and this big scandal that happens. Poor Pompeia. She gets kind of screwed in that one. Old JC is going to marry for the last time to Calpurnia in 59 BC. He is 41. She is 17. She is also, Calpurnia, younger than his stepdaughter, So that's fun. But Calpurnia is like not the worst wife. She's loyal to a fault. And I don't really know how she does it because Julius Caesar is a dog. Like unfaithful doesn't even cut it. He's just a dog. But by 51 BC, Julius Caesar is running Rome, large and in charge with a long suffering, young, beautiful, loyal wife through all of his transgressions. Okay, back to Cleopatra. Because remember, she's still in exile. P-13, her hubby bro, has put her into exile. And all those unruly Egyptians. And now Julius Caesar is on his way down to Alexandria. To, to have put, a word. To have a word. To put the rebellion down. A little chat. All right. Cleo's in exile. P-13 running shit. Two siblings in the wings. And Cleo starts thinking like, hey, I may have some uh, talents for me going that my idiot brother does not, in fact, possess. And if I can get into Alexandria and manage to see Julius Caesar, I'll just seduce him. I will make him mine, and I will ally with him. We can kill my brother. The kingdom will return back to me. This seems perfectly reasonable. It's a good plan. Let's kill my husband and my brother all at once. (laughs) Two for one. All right, so it begins, and it is the seduction of the ages. The legend is that there's a carpet that she is rolled up in. I've actually seen this done in current day scientific practice, and it doesn't go too well because Egypt is hot. Right. Yeah. So you're not going to come out of the unrolled carpet looking great, but however it happens, Cleopatra smuggled in. And Julius Caesar, who's never turned down a lady or maybe a man, is like, fantastic. I hear Egyptians do it better. Show me your stuff, girl. And she does. Julius Caesar is 52. Cleopatra is 22. And it is the classic story of seduction and an act of betrayal. Cleopatra will use her wiles. And sure enough, the next morning, Julius Caesar is like, I'm your dude. I got you, boo. So P-13 is mad. I would think. And he's like, what in the hell is happening around here? He throws his diadem around. He has been betrayed by his sister wife. wife. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And throws a teenage temper fit. Mm-hmm. And I can't believe you sold us out over to Rome. And Cleopatra, this is treason. And now there's a revolt that he is staging. Because remember, there's a shit ton of Roman troops in the city and like, The siege is on. Okay. Cleopatra is going to take her two younger siblings, Ptolemy 14 and Arsinoe hostage, because that's what you do. Consolidate power. Fighting's on. The ships are on fire in the harbor. There's a siege happening to all of the buildings and the library. Mm. And a plan is hatched by the Rebel Alliance, the Egyptian Rebel Alliance. 
It's like, great, here's our plan. We're going to draw all the troops to the Lighthouse of Pharos. Now, the Lighthouse of Pharos is second only to the Library of Alexandria in Egypt. The Lighthouse of Pharos sits in the mouth of the harbor. It is 300 feet tall. It has eight sides. It's an octagon. And you can see this baby from 30 miles away. The lighthouse is a big damn deal. It is the standing emblem and testament to the Ptolemy family. It is the Ptolemy family statue, but it's the Ptolemy family lighthouse. But it's useful. Absolutely. So during the siege plot, Arsinoe escapes and she is brought to the rebel army. Run by... The Rebel Alliance, the Egyptians. She's brought to the Egyptian rebellion. Because remember, Cleopatra's had Arsinoe. Right. Arsinoe escapes. So P- P-13 runs the Rebel Alliance? Everybody's switching sides. Okay. Yeah, there's a lot of side switching. Okay. You, okay. you might, yeah. Okay. Arsinoe, mm-hmm. who has been the H- captive hostage, of yeah. Cleopatra, escapes. The, dude, sibling rivalry here is enormous. Oh, she also marries P-14. Oh, well, why not? She marries Ptolemy 14 during this time. Sure. Well, I mean, if she's going to hold him hostage, may as well. Two. Okay. So now she's got two husbands, one of whom is trying to kill her. Jesus. Okay. So Arsinoe gets away and goes to the Egyptian Rebel Alliance. And they're like, hey, we're really glad to see you. Way to go on the escape thing. We're going to make you queen. Oh, shit. Okay. So it's awesome because Ptolemy 13, a royal for every faction. No, this is what's bad. Ptolemy 13 is done for in the rebellion. Mm. The war that the kid who threw his diadem around mm-hmm. that he wanted to start, he actually is going to drown in the sea trying to escape. The legend is he is weighed in so much gold on his body that the weight of his excessive gold wealth drowned him in the sea. There's a lot of legends in this story. Cautionary tale. There's a lot of fake news. Again, no real-time accounts, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Everything's written 300 years later. All right. Siege on the Lighthouse of Pharos. Julius Caesar barely escapes. He is defeated now by the standing Egyptian queen, the Egyptian queen Arsinoe, right? And her rebel alliance. And the lighthouse of Pharos becomes a symbol of her famous victory. She is the queen of Egypt. Who beat Rome. Who beat Rome. Everything's happy for a hot minute. But as often, rebel alliances uh, do, the infighting starts. And that gives Julius Caesar a chance to regroup and come back to t- fully, this time, take over Egypt. But in the meantime, during this escape plan, he is going to head back to Rome with Cleopatra. Hmm. He sets Cleopatra up in a villa there. He never makes her his official mistress, so to speak. But his wife, Calpurnia, isn't necessarily too happy at all. Wives are so weird. It's just baffling. Caesar has come back with his Egyptian side piece. Yeah. Well, I think technically Greek Macedonian, but okay. Calpurnia might be more angry when, hey, hey, nine months later. Oh. Welcome 
Caesarian mm. to the world. And now Caesar not only has a side piece, but an heir to his. And Cleopatra has a dynasty of her own that is directly tied to the most powerful leader in the world. And there's no stopping her now. So back to Egypt, Julius Caesar, Cleopatra head back to Alexandria to win. Okay. Ptolemy 14 just disappears. Nobody even mentions him anymore. He just (laughs) goes away. Hmm. Okay. In the Ptolemy family, we have one left standing and that's our Sinaway. Our Sinaway is captured And she is taken back to Rome in chains. And the plan is, we're going to lead Arsinoe through the streets in this big victory parade. And the path is, we're going to take her to the Colosseum, and then we're going to kill her. This is 46 BC, so it's very blood and circuses. Mm -hmm. The most amazing thing about this is Arsinoe would be the most absolutely famous prisoner to ever have this done. She is... She's the queen of Egypt. She's kind of a legend, right? So here's our Sinoe, teenager, 16, 17, if even. She's a baby, led through the streets in a cage. And behind her, there's a burning effigy of the lighthouse of Pharos. And the whole plan backfires. Because here's our Sinoe with her tears in the cage. Sweet, young, innocent teenager who's planned a rebellion and overthrown mm-hmm. Rome in the first place. Yeah. But, okay. And the crowd is like, oh, no, this isn't good. We can't kill her. This this may be barbaric. What? What's? It's this moment of reckoning. What's wrong with us? Have you heard of civil rights? So she, her sent away, like, gains the sympathy of the crowd along the way, and her life is spared. Which kind of forces Julius Caesar's hand. And he's like, shit, I totally promised my side piece Cleopatra that I would kill you because you are a direct threat to her rule. But I can't send you back to Egypt and I certainly can't keep you here. You have really put a damper on my victory parade, little girl. Little missy. (laughs) So what happens? Arsinoe is banished to Ephesus which is the other capital of the Roman Empire. So you have Rome in the West and you have Ephesus in the East. And let's talk about Ephesus for a second. This is not a Roman backwater. It is the glittering jewel of the East. It is the place to be. It's Ephesus is a big deal, okay? High society, but it, it is a- Like a world capital. Absolutely. London and New York, that's, for instance. That's it. Okay. So new plan. We're going to send our sin away, a thousand miles away, to Ephesus, just to be forgotten. I've got her a nice place in sanctuary at the Temple of Artemis. Temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. 425 feet long, 225 feet wide, 127 columns, 60 feet high, run by a bunch of eunuch priests. Arsinoe is safe. She's in sanctuary. People stay decades and decades in sanctuary. The plan is just to hold her up here forever in the temple of Artemis until she dies. She's protected and out of Cleopatra's way. And is that good enough for you, honey? Mm 
Problem solved. Right? I, I'm guessing that's a big no. Yeah. <laughs> so Cleopatra's still really angry at Arsinoe. Mm. And you may have heard of this thing. Uh, the Ides of March, March 15th, 44 BC. Oh, are we coming up on that? Yeah. <laughs> and Julius Caesar, you may have heard. Yeah, what happens that day? Yeah, yeah. at two. <laughs> uh, is out. Hmm. Julius Caesar. Yeah. Political overthrow. There was some backstabbing. <laughs> <laughs> With the death of Julius Caesar. Hmm. Cleopatra's in a little bit of a... A, a bind. A sticky pinch. Precarious so position. She has Egypt. Sure. And she has the son of Julius Caesar. Sure. And she has killed off her hubby bro, P-14. Sure. Right? And her is out of her hair. But Julius Caesar is dead. And how do I continue to secure my place in a world that is ruled by the Roman Empire? Right. Hey. What if I pull out that old plan that I used before? Seduction really seems to be a real winner for me. Who's around that I can ally with that maybe can help me hold on to my power? I feel like if this were a musical, she'd be singing, Don't Cry For Me, Alexandria. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Cleopatra has a plan. That's really very good. Cleopatra has a plan. Enter Mark Mark Antony. Antony. (laughs) Now, Mark Antony... Just so happens to be the ruler of Ephesus. Oh. Oh. So where Julius Caesar <laughs> was the king of the west side, Mark Antony is the king of the east side and has taken over. You also thought Julius Caesar was a dog. Meet Mark Antony. That's exactly right. Okay. Capricorn man. Born January 14th in 83 B.C. It would be mild to say that Mark Antony is obsessed with both women and sex. He has a lot of mistresses. He's got honeys in every port. In order to do that, you need wives. So by the time he actually makes it to the Trashy Divorces Depot, which is in Tarsus this time. Oh. Wife number one is done. Didn't know we'd expanded the line that far. Yeah. (laughs) Wife number two, who is also his cousin. Hmm. Yeah. Is also out. You know why she got booted out, thrown out of the house? Not a sibling. She slept with his BFF. (laughs) Okay, wait. Mark Antony's third wife, this one's a doozy. She's powerful. She likes to help him. She is married to him through the Julius Caesar assassination. She will promote Mark Antony. She is a power player. There is one powerful woman in Rome. It is his wife at this point. She will continue to promote and work for his benefit, even after he starts this thing with Cleopatra. She's mortified by this, right? But by 40 BC, she's mysteriously just dead. Which should leave Cleopatra wide open because Mark Anthony and Cleopatra right now are already carrying on. We're going to come to that, but that does not happen. Mark Anthony, Jesus Christ. Mark Anthony will, for political alliances, marry one more time. And this time to the sister of Octavian. You may have heard of Octavian. That was his name before he got his adopted ruler name, which is Emperor Augustus. Hmm. So the sister of the Emperor Augustus or to Correct. Be. Okay. Now, the interesting thing about this fourth marriage that Mark Antony has to Octavia, they have daughters and their daughters have some babies. So Mark Antony is actually an ancestor to three future Roman emperors, Caligula, Ooh. Claudius, 
and Nero. Wow, that's a good time. That's a lineup. Spiderwebs. <laughs> Isn't the story fun? Yes. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't know that you wanted an answer. No, like, had history teachers made history this much fun? Whoa. Okay. So, having Octavia as a wife, the sister of the future Emperor Augustus, like, isn't going to stop Mark Antony from having a hot and heavy affair with Cleopatra, nor stop him from having three children by her. Ha! How do we get there? All right, backing up. I mean, I think I know. <laughs> <laughs> We Egyptians have some tricks. <laughs> okay, backing up. Julius Caesar's dead. Cleopatra needs another powerful man. Mark Antony is on the rise politically. But Mark is broke AF. He wants more land and more power, but he does not have the cash to make that happen. Enter Cleopatra. Because the wealth of Egypt could certainly fund Mark Antony's dreams of world domination. Cleopatra knows this. And she's got money. She also knows how to play the game. So she's playing coy. All Mark Antony is doing is begging her for a visit. Cleopatra is ignoring. Like, he's sliding up in her DMs. She's like, nope, done. Swipe left. I'm not into this. But finally, she has him so desperate. She gets him where she wants him. She's like, okay, great. We'll meet for coffee in Tarsus. This is kind of the halfway point between where he is and where she is. Mark Antony is 42. Cleopatra is 28. And this is a PR campaign. People are lining the streets to see the legendary Cleopatra, who comes rolling down the river in her barge, surrounded by a dozen boys who are adoring her with the fans and there's a canopy and a cloth of gold and all that jazz. And Mark Antony and Cleopatra are going to party it up. There are lavish feasts. Oh, it's a party barge. It's a party barge. Awesome. There's flattery. There's charm. Cleopatra, because Mark Antony is really in to his exercise program. Mm -hmm. So Cleopatra will just sit around and watch him do his fitness and compliment him. You're so strong. You're so... Uh, Cleopatra is working to an end. And <laughs> Mark Antony is working to an end. He needs her money. Cleop so he's he's doing CrossFit on the party barge, and she's just like laying back getting fanned by... That's it. Oh, you're so handsome. Boys. You're so strong. Peeling grapes for her and uh -huh. stuff. All right. Uh-huh. And uh, <laughs> they both need help from each other. And Mark Antony's like, I need your cash. And Cleopatra's like, sure, buddy, I can help you. But uh, I need you to kill my sister. Yeah, I need you to do something a little fun for me. <laughs> like, being my lover's fun and all that. But have you ever tried murder? In sanctuary. Play. Yeah, because you're the supreme leader in Ephesus. And I'm not sure if you've heard. My sister is hanging out in sanctuary. Amazing. At the Temple of Artemis. With a bunch of eunuchs. And it would be super if you would kill her. And the deal is struck. <laughs> okay. So Arsinoe dragged from the temple and put to death on the orders of Mark Antony. Really? This is headline news. I was going to say. Crime of the century. Yeah, you don't do that. Sanctuary has a meaning. Yeah. Okay. Uh, apparently nothing is sacred. Like, there's a reason you call it sanctuary. And, like, whatever god you're worshiping, it's bad. You don't, like, right. you're in sanctuary. It's the social contract. I mean, it. 
It is the crime of the century. Yeah. The world cannot stop talking about this. Like, it it shakes everything. Rome Twitter was in an uproar. Uproar. Okay. Now, Mark Antony has Cleo's money. Cleopatra has the power. And a party barge. And a party barge. And Caesar's son, as well as three other children that Cleopatra will bear with new baby daddy, Mark Antony. And everything's awesome for like another decade. Cleopatra has murdered every sibling, but she's holding on to her power and securing the place for her children. So she's like the queen queen of Egypt in Italy, basically. I mean, in... She's the queen of Egypt. Yeah. Does she live in Egypt, though? Or is yeah. she just chilling with Mark No, she lives Antony. in Egypt. Okay. She's the queen of Egypt. All right. Mark Antony's hanging out with her in Egypt. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. All right. So he's the leader of Ephesus, but... Yeah, he's, he's never gone back to Octavia. <laughs> he left Ephesus, and now he's living with Cleopatra. So now it's don't cry for me, Octavia. <laughs> Everything's... They're doing fine, Cleopatra and Mark Antony. Okay. Raising the Rugrats... It's, everything is great. In the land of milk and honey. Okay, but then Mark Antony is like, you know, I'm still married to that Octavia lady. And she was just kind of a power play thing anyway. And I think I'm done with her. And her brother Octavian, who is the competing ruler with Mark Antony at this time, is like, um, I don't think so, man. (laughs) So Octavian... 30 BC is going to come after Mark Antony and Cleopatra and invade Egypt. Now, there are a lot of stories about how the death of Mark Antony and Cleopatra go down. You broke my sister's heart. Well, also, you're the most major player. And if I take you down, I get to possess everything you have, except for your skank side piece. I don't want her. I'm going to kill her. Okay. Well. Kinda. That's Octavian. Yeah. Like, Octavian is not a yeah. not a good guy. <laughs> okay, so, but Mark Antony is. <laughs> no, there's no halos. That's what I'm saying. There's <laughs> nary a halo in the all story. Right. All right. When it's all said and done, maybe it's death by suicide. Maybe it's murder. That's a whole other podcast. But Octavian is left standing. Mark Antony, Cleopatra, not left are standing. Dead. Oh, also, so is Caesarian. Hmm. He's left dead, too, because part of the problem is he, in this happy period of a decade, Mark Antony legitimizes Caesarian. Mm, like, oh, you are the rightful heir and sure. son of Julius Caesar, so sure. everything is going to be going to you. I'm doing it for you, son. Sure. And now the next in line emperor is like, to mention that actually. Part. Yeah, actually, no, none of that is going to happen. It's mm. all going to me. Have you heard my new name? Emperor Augustus. Augustus. Okay. Now, the three kids that Cleopatra has from Mark Antony are not killed yet, but they are collected and paraded through the streets of Rome, just like their aunt. Oh, yeah. And that's where I'm going to circle back to, because I think this is almost the neatest part of the whole story. Okay. So in the 1920s, there's some archaeological exploration in Ephesus, and they find a tomb there, and it is on the very main street, is on the best, most prestigious street in Ephesus, and it is different than any other tomb around. It is in the shape of an octagon, 
And that is not a shape that is anywhere else represented in the city. Certainly not on the most imperial street, but nowhere in Ephesus. Right, right. It's on the street of heroes. So this whole archaeological team is like, God, there must be like some kind of important significance here. And here's where it's really weird. Because all of the dead in Ephesus are buried outside the city limits, with super rare exceptions. Ephesus is 10 times the size of Pompeii. So just, it, I mean, it's a, it's a big city. Mm-hmm. Only three men had been buried inside the special area in Ephesus. Okay. I'm guessing it was like a walled city at the time because yeah. I think that was the but style. Dead or buried outside the city. Right. They're, as you would expect. Three dead people. Contagion. Men buried yeah. in the city. And then there's this weird octagon. Like, what up? So archaeologists go in. And they find these, like, female bones underwater, and they take them out of the tomb. I don't know. The skull goes missing. There are some photos, and researchers do some stuff. And, like, we can't figure this out. It's a mystery that's left to the eternal ages until this other researcher comes along. Her name is Dr. Hilke Thur. And she's drawn to this ruin because that's all it is. It's a ruin. There's a base intact. But there are like 170 scattered stones laying around that she's like, what's going on? So they try to piece this jigsaw puzzle back together. And they take all the pieces and they scan all the pieces because that's way easier to try to fit them together in a computer simulation than it is. Well, and they wouldn't have had that option in the 1920s when they first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but yeah, 100 years ago when they first were doing this, when they first discovered this, like they. Yeah, that wasn't. (laughs) Let's plug it into a database, chums. (laughs) Exactly. So they're going to use some modern technology, right, to piece, scan all the pieces and put them back together. And in one of the scans on one of the columns, they see this tiny etching (laughs) that is a scratch of the design. Like maybe a new mason started a job and another mason is just kind of drawn out. Like, here's how it looks. Yeah. It never, it was too imperceptible to be noticed if it had not been scanned. So science, yo. And all the research nerds in her department are working on this and piece it back together. And what they find are all of these stones put together a 50 feet high, 13 feet wide, the most prominent building on the most important street in the city. When it's all assembled, guess what it looks just like? That lighthouse... In the harbor. A pharos, the symbol of Arsinoe's victory over Rome. And the bones they find show that it's a young female. She's in her late teens, early 20s, no signs of hard labor, lived well, no sign of illness. And these scientists make the case that this, in fact, is the remembrance to Arsinoe built in Ephesus, Cleopatra's murdered sister, to honor the fallen and forgotten Egyptian queen, crime of the century, and maybe Ephesus broke sanctuary and we need to do something nice mm-hmm. so people one day can learn we weren't monsters. That's very cool. Science, yo. I love it. That's some trashy family values for you That's... on this fine day. Whew. So many trash cans, all painted with hieroglyphs. Oh my God, yeah. 
I'm going to say Cleopatra gets enough trash cans to fill the Library of Alexandria. Like a 300-foot tall trash can that you can see for 30 miles? I love her. She's a badass. She's a broad. But, whoa. Nary a halo in sight. No. No. (laughs) I know. Take a breath. Whew. That's your AP Trashy Divorces class for the week. Game of Bones. (laughs) That's about it. That went into deep, dark places. I'm glad that sibling marriage is done. (laughs) Glad that's not a thing anymore. We have such a good example from the Ptolemy family. (sighs) Yeah. Glad that one has passed along and out of fashion. Oh, God, yeah. All right. Well, that's another week of Trashy Divorces. Thanks, everybody, for for tuning in. Oh, my God. And sharing your time with us. Don't forget, if you need more Trashy Divorces in the meantime, you can come visit us on Patreon.com slash Trashy Divorces. Lots of free stuff. Again, remember on the bit.ly slash Trash Candy Quarantine. Just plug that into a browser, bit.ly. Yeah, be sure to listen to those now because we're going to be pulling those off on Halloween and replacing them Mm -hmm. with some new stuff coming in November. Friends, we hope that you will keep your hands clean. Oh, keep your masks on. Keep your hearts trashy. Keep the hearts so trashy. Thanks again for spending your time with us today. We'll be back next week. Oh, we're going to be back next week with some witchy poo. Witchy women. Oh, I'm so excited. (laughs) Keep your hearts trashy till then, y'all. Happy early Halloween, everyone. Yeah. Bye. We're two weeks away. We're not even. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Hey, your birthday's a month. Okay. Happy (laughs) Halloween, everybody. (laughs) Cheers, y'all. See you next week. Bye. Bye. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacy and Alicia, with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at CarbonMade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram and definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at trashydivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at trashydivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at patreon.com slash trashydivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear want to advertise with us reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information and last but not least come play with us on social media i keep most of our trashy divorces instagram hopping stacy and i share it up over on facebook including our trashy divorces podcast discussion group come join us over there and thanks again everybody for listening keep it trashy y'all